Hey, this is Grant Helgeson with Avalanche Canada, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You know, backcountry skiing used to just be a sport for nerds. Like it was like, it's like riding a unicycle or something. And now it's suddenly really cool. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. I'm doing a takeover this week of Wes Gregg's Third Thursday Spot. Thanks, Wes. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, with additional support by Interwest Insurance. It's time for another Snow Saw giveaway. Primo Snow and Avalanche produces the El Professional Snow Saw. To win this saw, all you need to do is follow at the Avalanche Hour on Instagram and tag the podcast in a post. I'm excited to share with you an interview that I recorded back on Meteor's Day with Grant Helgeson. Grant is a senior Avalanche forecaster with Avalanche Canada, and we have a good chat comparing public forecasting in the U.S. and Canada. We talked about him being a sledder in a skier-centric industry, getting Avalanche information out to those who have no idea they need it, as well as forecasting in huge data-sparse regions. We probably had a bit too much fun, so this is going to be a two-part episode. Without further ado, this is part one with Grant Helgeson. Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Here we are in deep winter, January 1st. That's right. Yeah, it's New Year's Day. This uh, this will get broadcast maybe a month or so from now um, to fit in with the schedule. And uh, it is New Year's Day for us today. And it was a powder day, one of those developing powder days when uh, it started out with not much new snow and just got better over the day with some new snow and some wind. Yeah, all the magic avalanche recipes coming together. I was out um, in a really neat spot north up into the gold stream yesterday playing in the snow and uh, and what a funky we have this is this year is off to such a weird start i'm really not sure where it's gonna go it is interesting actually and i've noticed um well we should segue into maybe a little bit about who you are and what you do but uh, Mm. i was reading one of your forecasts for avalanche canada and i liked how you said the snowpack is a mess it was uh it was like (laughs) lighthearted, casual but to the point and uh very expressive of that point yeah, you know, I am. Uh, so what's my what's my deal? I am now one of the two senior avalanche forecasters at Avalanche Canada. Um, I'm also a project assistant project manager there. So that means that I get to work on a lot of cool things, which we should talk about it at some point. But this is year lucky number 13 of me. I think this is my yeah, this is my 10th season at Avalanche Canada. Spent four years um so I guess I'm halfway into my 13th year, something like that. But four years at the Utah Avalanche Center, coming into, been with Avalanche Center since 2011. It's it's kind of wild how these things evolve. I think that these are these are really challenging jobs to get, and no one ever targets becoming an Avalanche forecaster. I mean, there's what, 200 of us in the world or something like that, maybe 500 on the broadest possible count. Um, but it is such interest work, and we're all so passionate about what we do. That it's it's a really fun job, and I I kind of chuckle at times like this too. Like I got up at five thirty this morning and was doing all of our early morning updates, and now here I am at six o'clock at night, still talking about snow and weather and avalanches, and still updating um, our with sites and looking to see what's happening out there. But 
Absolutely. Yeah, Big incoming storm. And you can hear that passion, man. That's cool. Is that something that you had like right from the start? Did you, did you work in uh, snow and avalanche before Utah avalanche center? Perhaps you can take us back into your uh, background a little bit there and um, talk to us a bit about how you got from um, the States and working in Utah and then uh, currently at avalanche Canada. Yeah, you know, it all comes down to a love affair with Canada. I'm an American through and through, Missoula, Montana kid. And I was so passionate about uh, snow and avalanche that when really early in my backcountry skiing career, I was like, I got to figure out what's going on. And so kind of got myself into the Canadian curriculum um, during university. So I took my, my ITP or industry training program level one, which doesn't tell you much about how to make good decisions in the backcountry, truthfully. It just makes you into someone who can speak um snow dork in canada actually and take really good notes absolutely your observation gathering at that point hey yeah 100 percent. and just you know give handing that information off to decision makers um but my my path was a little bit roundabout i my background is actually in business marketing and management and i was a partner marketing coordinator at backcountry.com in geez when would this have been <sighs> 2007 or something like that and backcountry.com was um, just a, a year or two after startup at that point. It was a really fun place to work. I was working with all the big brands. I mean, I was passionate about being in the mountains. And this kind of seemed like a natural extension of where I could go and practice business, but also work with brands and people that I, that I liked. And I remember Bob Merrill was uh, one of the guys who was around there, along with Dustin Roberts. And was one of the folks who was around there when that thing started. And I started expressing some interest when I saw a um, ad one at the Utah Avalanche Center for an assistant avalanche forecaster. And I was like, oh, that's the dream job. And I mentioned this to backcountry Bob Merrill and he got on the phone. I remember very distinctly, like we in backcountry comes like little cubicles, like everybody can hear everybody. My boss sits, I don't know, 20 feet away from me. And Bob Merrill gets on the phone one morning, like everybody is in the office. And he's like, I don't know if he called, I think he called Bruce Tremper. Or maybe it was just Craig Gordon. I mean, he knew all those characters and he's like, Craig, I got a really good guy here. I think you should hire him as your new as your new forecaster. And I was like, oh my God, Bob. My boss can totally hear this. Like, this is sweet that you're doing this for me. But man, like, I hope this works because the cat's out of the bag. Um, and I started pursuing that zealously. And it, I honestly I didn't get the job because I was the best snow person. And I was actually pretty green. Um, I had I had no industry experience in the snow and avalanche game at that point. But what I did have was the, the marketing experience. And at that time, you know, they were trading Black Diamond, um, you know, website banner ads for like a pair of gloves and a backpack for the forecasters, like the odd pair of skis, that kind of thing. And I was like, boys, you, you can do a lot more with these eyes. And so I started setting up partner marketing agreements for them and really kind of bringing them into the modern age um, for their digital side of what they were doing while they mentored me in snow. That's a good, so, uh, like, a good trade. Yeah, it, it really was. I felt incredibly, um, it, it, was, it was so generous of them to really kind of take me under their wing and do that. I felt at the time I was, I was really honored to be able to do that work. And the first, the funny thing was like, I, I got that first job, I think February 1st and the contract ended uh, April 1st. So it really wasn't very much work, but I was like, I take this. So I kind of, I put everything I had into it and then started fighting fire in the summers as many of us do and people tree plant and all that kind of thing. But I got into the fire game and came back to it and did three more years with those guys working with primarily folks like uh, Craig Gordon is my number one mentor there, Bruce Tremper. And they really got me into the game. Um, we started developing uh, partnerships with the snowmobile manufacturer, really getting 
helping everyone out, like bringing the Utah Lunch Center into the modern era with trades and reaching out to new people. At that time, I was part of the, the Know Before You Go program. And Craig Gordon and I, in the early days there, used to talk to about, I think it's about 25,000 Utah kids every year. At so the school maybe, system? Yeah. And it was wild. So primarily um, like grades six through 12. And we were just talking with kids. Like every time we could get an assembly, we'd go and do it. So we would, we we were we were not sleeping much there. It I sure remember, sounds like, like it. <laughs> yeah, because the, in the American model, like you get up at four in the morning to write a forecast. You do a field day. Often at times, I'd be like in a school in the late afternoon or early evening doing an assembly. And Craig and I would just hit that cadence nonstop. I remember in those days, Craig was just drinking so much coffee. I had never drank coffee prior to that, and just kind of running out of four-hour sleep windows. Um, which you can only pull off when you're, you know, in your mid twenties. Oh, absolutely. I can never do that now, <laughs> but that's how I got into it. Um, yeah. And eventually transitioned to the, to Canada. I was always spending my summers in Canada and had a, a Canadian partner at the time. And yeah, I've always loved BC and Alberta. I remember being a Montana kid and folks talking about how BC was like Montana in the fifties and something about that just sounded really alluring to me. So yeah, here similar I, landscapes and a lot of connections across that border for sure. Yeah, just you know, BC is far more rural um, than Montana is. I mean, Montana is a rural place, but you can go long stretches in BC of just these huge mountains. It's like you know, mountains and rivers without end. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, been back in BC for about a decade and just loving it. That's awesome. So when you segued into working at, for Avalanche Canada, um, was that a job posting that you saw that you applied for, or how did that turn out? Yeah, same thing. I had um, was playing the border game, and basically, I, I you have to I believe to maintain permanent residency, you have to be in Canada four fifths of the time to start applying for citizenship. And I realized I wasn't going to get there staying in Utah. Um, so a, a job popped up again for an assistant avalanche forecaster, and I had just always held the Canadian system in such high regard that I was like, okay, I'm a full time forecaster in Utah, like I'm running my own forecast region, but like. I'm going to go play the Canadian game. I'm just going to try and be as humble as possible. And so applied for that gig. Um, and really, again, kind of just like beat down the door. I had, I had known Carl from some different ITP courses. Like by the time I applied for my, uh, for the assistant forecasting job in, in Canada, I'd done the in ITP two and, you know, weather courses. Like I'd been through all the, the coursework, which is so valuable. Um, and so I'd made a point of also, stopping into the office in Revelstoke, like kind of shaking hands and kissing babies, like buying Carl Claussen coffees, just so he would know, because it was a long plan. I wanted to work for him so badly. So when the job came up, he uh, he knew who I was. And I was like, can we have can we have coffee and talk about this? He's like, how about we have, a, how about you come in for an interview? It's like, yes. Nice work, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> it paid off. It sounds like you played the long game on that one. I really did, yeah. I really did. And it, you know, those desires of, I guess that was 30 year old me or, or late twenties me. And now to be 38 and doing it, like I, I still do pinch myself at times that I get to live in Revelstoke and do this work. Like it is, it is pretty fun. And you haven't stand like stood still since you've been here either, because your role within Avalanche Canada has gone far beyond that of an assistant forecaster at this point. Now you're one of the senior forecasters. Yeah. Here, so what does that involve? Oh yeah. So that, that first year was great. I was kind of like, uh, I got to be a ski bum a little bit for the season. Like I think I, they, they offered me 50 days initially. 
And so I just, I plan trips all around it because I really want to start familiarizing myself with the mountains of Western Canada. So it was like, you know, I did numerous hot trips that year. Like I spent a bunch of time on the coast. I was down in the Southern Purcells, like I had these huge blocks of time off. So I was just kind of scheming with all my buddies to just be skiing and sledding um, all over BC. And they took notice of that. And at the end of the year um, gave me a, a full forecasting gig at that time, which kind of meant that you would take on about 100 to 120 days a year. And I did that for another year with those guys. And then they, they had this, this idea, because it, it, it is a struggle in this industry to find what you're going to do in the summers. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's, that's part of this game. Um, and so I was doing the fire thing, but it's kind of like, how do I make this work? So I was bouncing to Alberta for fire, coming back to BC. Anyways, they, I, they had a competition and had a, a a year round forecasting competition and myself and James Floyer, uh, who's now the, one of the supervisors of our, the public avalanche warning service got those gigs. And what that meant for me essentially um, was I started working kind of like nine to 12 months a year at that point. And I, I got that gig for a couple reasons. I think one, I was, you know, again, beating on the door, super keen, kind of always the kid who would show up to work early, stay late. Um, but that time I was also the only sledder amongst the crew and like the only person who, you know, had, had owned multiple sleds and Utah was spending, gosh, 75 to hundred days a year on sleds. And I grew up ski racing, like I'm a skier through and through, but like, I'm pretty well equal parts of sledder at this point. Um, and we were just starting to open up the North Rockies pilot project. So the North Rockies is like this 50,000 square kilometer region, um, that basically starts in like Prince George, BC, and then runs north from there, Chetwin, Tumblr Ridge, very remote part of the, the world. Um, kind of a weak continental snowpack, but down near the Caribous, they'll get big storms on the western edges of it. And so that meant that that year I started hanging out up there a bunch and working with the province and we at that time the Canadian Avalanche Center to figure out how we were going to better offer public safety products in that part of the world. And so I it's think a part of that, the world that's seen a lot of accidents, but there's not a lot of uh, professionals operating up there to to backfill for rescue or to provide information for you guys to put that forecast together. Hey, yeah, it's cowboy country up there. Um, it's come a long ways, but there's very few professional operators. You know, there's a, a couple little heli skiing operations which are fabulous, but you don't have the density of of, of professional data that we would have. Um, down here in the south, as folks up there call it, so it, it's challenging. And the snowpack, it, it's a very, it's a very strange geoclimatic. There's many different regions there. So from the, the really dry side near Tumbler Ridge, which probably has like a hundred centimeters of snow on the ground right now, and then you look at like the Renshaw, which probably has like 250 centimeters on the ground right now, and is like much more aligned with like a caribou or a deeper snowpack. Um, but I think it was kind of putting my time in in the north and kind of demonstrating some more of uh, my ability to run projects on my own with, with minimal assistance that sort of started putting me in place for some of these, um, these longer term gigs. And so I think just be hanging out for long enough and having some different skills um, led to this senior avalanche forecasting job that I share. Mark Bender is the other senior avalanche forecaster. Mark is an ACMG examiner and has been like in the snow game feels like longer than I've been alive. I, I have a huge respect for him and I look up to him in a, in a lot of ways. And I just kind of like, wow, I have the same job as Mark Bender. How is that possible? <laughs> um, but he and I are the two senior forecasters there. And so, yeah, it's, it's evolved in this really cool thing. We do a lot more than avalanche forecasting at this point. 
So when you, uh, when I reached out to you about this interview, you were actually up there installing weather stations uh, to gather a bit more data, I guess. Would you talk us through kind of how you're dealing with some of the data gaps you've got up there? Yeah, so that's that's actually a kind of a neat program. Um, we, have a, we have a few different weather stations that we run up there, just like the standard Campbell Scientific seasonal weather stations. So you go up there when there's snow on the ground, tow a, to tow a toboggan behind a sled. And it's always like it's I've I really enjoy kind of like the the blue color kind of turn the phone off work a lot as well. And that's kind of one of those trips, you know, you're just like pounding a sled road in and it's it's snowing at three centimeters an hour, and you're like, where is that spot again? Like I can't see anything. And like you get to play all that game and you flip the sled sometimes. Um and so of course. yeah, I was up there it's <laughs> I love that stuff. That's just um, how sledding goes, man. At least for me, anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, it, it's evolved. So we have such great tools now to use up there. Um so a couple things happen. One, we've actually got a field team up there now. So that was one of the recommendations we made to the province back in what was that, 2013, was that we would need a field team. We actually suggested that we would need two field teams in the region that would work on a cross shift and then basically do laps through the area. It's a huge but, area we're talking about here too. For people that um, are not familiar with it, it's um, and I think that a lot of the listenership of this podcast is from the state. So maybe you can just mm -hmm. give us like we were talking about fifty thousand square kilometers of terrain. Like, what would that be uh, comparable to? Like a well-known area down in the in the states, for example, that somebody might be able to just picture. Like the massive area you're talking about with just like two people and some sleds roaming around, trying to provide good quality public avalanche forecasting. Yeah, I would say you take, well, my my forecast area um, in Utah was 500 square miles. And that was the big one down that I shared with Craig Gordon down in the Uintas. Oh, excuse me, um, Craig and I worked in the Uintas together, but what I'm really thinking of when I talk about that, the forecast region that I was working in was down in the Manti skyline. So call that like 250 to 500 square miles-ish. But you know, we, uh, what happens at the International Snow Science Workshop all the time is that Canadians love doing this. They take all of Switzerland's forecast regions, for which there are hundreds, and in some places they provide both AM and PM updates, and it's very sophisticated and very Swiss. And then we, we, we put that inside, like we put the whole country of Switzerland inside a place like the North Rockies, and you can fit, I don't know, five or ten Switzerland's in the same area. So we're talking about like you're forecasting for all of Western Europe, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Without the without the ledge barrier. Um, and yeah. without the people everywhere, too. Like you're going huge distances between between towns and these folks that are living up there and sledding up there or visiting from Northern Alberta traditionally to sled up there, they're, they're deep, like they're super remote. So like good quality information is so important for them. They're deep and super remote and a pretty self-reliant breed as well. Um, but they're like, like we're talking, you know, carrying extra tanks of gas and like with, with like the newer e-techs and the fuel injected sleds, like folks are going up there and, and going through you know, like 50 liters um in a day which is a lot of fuel so like it's like a, a full-on like you know trucks in the parking lots at five six in the morning and people coming out in the dark with their headlights and it's just the it's a it's a huge area and there are so many neat mountain ranges within that zone too that are all very distinctly different um so one thing that's really helpful is that now we've got a field team in place so we've got a, a couple different folks um actually got three folks we have uh two people based out of Prince George, another person based out of McBride. 
And we've got them set up with their own, like it's great now with this national avalanche strategy, like brand new one ton truck, multiple sleds, and they're, they're gathering information for us. Um, we also have the mountain information network. And truthfully, as Canadians, we were a bit slow on the uptake of getting the public um, data into our data stream. The folks in the States were, were doing that long before we were, but it's happening now and it's going really well, actually. And so when folks go out and have a day in the backcountry, they can submit as little or as much information as they want to us, um, either on our phone app or on the website. And that's really, especially in a time like this across the province, actually, like we're relying on public data more now than ever through the, the MIN or Mountain Information Network. So it's really the public helping us make public products at this point, um, which, is, which is very cool. That is super cool. I remember um, Avalanche Canada put out a statement earlier on in the year, maybe it was your first quarterly uh, newsletter, that there's something like a 300% increase in the number of min reports like so far this season, year over year. Is that right? It, that is right. And it's so humbling and we needed it so badly this year. Uh, well, this year more than ever. I mean, we're saying mm -hmm. that for just about a everything but obviously like a lot of our information that we're using for forecasting for myself for highways or for yourself with public avalanche uh, products that you're putting out like this is information that's being submitted every day by mechanized ski guides by ski touring mm -hmm. operations by industrial users and um, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, where you get your data from like when when you're putting your forecast together um, maybe compare the professional and the and the recreational yeah. So obviously, like professionals have a, um, in Canada, we all kind of have a, a reporting duty to help each other out through the InfoX, which is professional information exchange run by the professional body, which is the Canadian Avalanche Association. And so folks use that as um, their due diligence and to share with others. So when any of those operations that you just mentioned, highways, professional guides, um, folks doing mitigation, they do their field day and they, they go to InfoX and they report on that. Um, this year though, with COVID in place, like very few ski touring lodges are open. Um, Canadian Mountain Holidays or CMH is down to just one lodge right now. Out of like 13. So it's a huge yeah. drop. Huge drop. And they, they cover so much train in places that people otherwise don't go. Um, many backcountry lodges are closed. Many cat skiing operations are closed. And so there's just a lot of blank spots on the map this year. Um, but interestingly, as folks listening to this podcast will know that backcountry skiing is hotter than ever. Like you can't, it's, I don't know if you can go buy a probe right now. You can't no go kidding. buy a pair of touring bindings. Like you can't buy skins anywhere. Like it's, it's so popular and up. everyone, every parking lot's busy and there's lots and lots of people out there in places where maybe you wouldn't normally have seen them. And a lot of new folks get yeah, into yeah. it too. Oh so on that subject with like the huge increase in recreational users, now we have a big upswing in people using the mountain information network. When you're using that data to uh, kind of stitch together a picture in your mind of a forecast for an area where you're not actually presently located, like there's inherent cha challenges with using information that comes from uh, like a, a, an unnamed source, so to speak. Like you don't necessarily mm -hmm. even have to put your real name on there for submitting the information. So like sometimes it's kind of hard to know how much weight to put on on certain bits of information. <laughs> like I was wondering if you dive into that a little bit because that's a, a challenge that is uh, hugely present for you guys. Yeah, now we're starting to get into kind of like the dark magic or the black magic side of avalanche forecasting. Because it's like, you know, you get a picture of, a, of an avalanche. Well, I mean, 
you can weight that fairly heavily, especially if it has a, if it's geotagged and you know what aspect and elevation it came from. And if you can see it's a fresh one, well then, and there's a story that goes with it, like that's great information. It starts to get a little bit more blurry when people are submitting pictures of avalanches of unknown age, you know, like, hmm, interesting. But was that seven days old? Is that happened yesterday? Did that happen today? That kind of stuff is really challenging. Um, but I, I, I like having all that information out there. It provides a new aspect to the game too. And honestly, it, it's more of a, of a qualitative thing than a quantitative thing for me. Like I just, I need to look at the observation and see what it is and decide how much I'm going to weight it. And I mean, there's places right now, like, gosh, the caribous have been a pretty blank spot on the map recently. So when someone um, is near Quinell and submit something like from the West side of the range, like I'm going to weight it pretty heavily. You know, because that's a piece of in, information in a spot where you have n- almost none, basically. And you have none. Yeah, exactly. Um, weather stations have become super important. You know, I remember like in Utah, occasionally uh, Craig and I, we with the cadence of the forecast, we might have gone out on a Friday and then put out a forecast. Um, like on a, a Saturday, we might not have been out in the field on Saturday. And I, I mean, I remember Drew Hardesty, another mentor to me, and someone who I have tremendous respect from or for, excuse me. Um, I remember him saying to me early on, like, you know, you got to be careful forecasting by wire. And he was right. Like we're forecasting by wire a lot right now. And so when you're just relying on remote weather stations, which have errors all the time, or, you know, the wind sensors, the anemometers freeze up or the tipping bucket is out of antifreeze or you name it. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're really trying to take like what you know of the region and you're coming hypothesis every day. And you're just, for me, I'm just picking things and, and asking myself, like, does this confirm or deny my hypothesis? And if it confirms it, great, I'll move on to the next piece of information and see if I can strew together the story. But if it doesn't, then I might have to, you know, if I, it's like, oh, I thought that, you know, this, this December 2nd crust was done in that part of the world. And like, here's a giant natural avalanche is clearly fresh on that thing. So I guess I need to go back to the drawing board. And I think that the way that I'm dealing with that now in this has been a bit of a maturity thing for me is that I just focus on expressing my uncertainty with the snowpack a lot more to the users. And it's so much easier that way. But I don't know if before it was that my my ego was that much more involved in it. It's tough to say, but I would try and put a finer point on it. And I would try and really focus on accuracy in my forecasts and precision, like down to the, the absolute millimeter um, you know, like really focusing on identifying snow crystals all the time and like knowing, trying to know, everything about this natural phenomenon that you can't know everything about so true. and it's 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 maddening that way actually and you you can you can chase yourself in circles there and you can lose the core essence of the message and as professionals we talk about our mindset all the time i think that um, roger atkins strategic mindset is one of the the neatest things that we've had in the avalanche industry in the last 10 years personally but we we talk about our uncertainty you know, we have things like be, becoming entrenched because we, we don't want to step out in new terrain. So we just, we stay things that we know. And that's like the advice I try to offer my readers is like, hey, I don't know actually if this, this early, De- we have an early December crust facet surface or interface, basically that's throughout the mountains, Western Canada. And in some places it's more than others. And other places it's, it's easier to pin down. But in the places that it's not, specifically like the Columbia Mountains, I'm just talking about it like, hey, I'm not sure if this thing is done yet. It's so deep that you can't feel it on your skis or sled. Like it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm converting, but it's like a meter, it's, it's three feet down almost everywhere at this point. So you don't get to feel that one. It's like a wind slab. 
Absolutely. And we're, we're always talking about, oh, it feels good. But, but what does that really mean? You know, if you're not, that's like an absence of like input as in, you know, you're skiing, you're actively in the terrain and you're seeing small features pop like that's something that is very tangible that you can feel. But when it's for one thing, a deeper persistent problem and in an area where you might not have visited for a few weeks and you're relying on these little scraps of data, that's really tricky for sure. Yeah. So just really offering folks being like, you know what, you need to craft your travel plans so you don't end up in thin rocky areas you know don't this is not the time to drop in from the ridge so to speak like this might be the time to poke in the tree line and see what you see but just take a cautious approach right now for a number of different reasons like a you don't want to end up in a hospital right now if at all absolutely possible. um b you know the thing that i'm thinking about too is like i don't want to have to call for a rescue right now and bring a bunch of volunteers out for me and you know one or two of my friends they don't know that we what our what our are so I'm just kind of telling people about, about the problems and not trying to say like, this is done or this is good to go or be very scared. It's like, go up there and explore, but use the train to your advantage right now to choose lines and go out and have a great time with. Um, you know, I was just, I was skiing uh, avalanche press in the past with a good buddy of mine and professional skier, Chris Rubens. And we finished this like, Chris is an, an amazing skier. I always, skiing with Chris, it's like watching like a like a leopard take down like a, a gazelle or something. Like I'm, I think I'm skiing fast. And then I just, he just blows by me. I'm just like, Oh my God, you're so good at this. And he's, he's so capable. Like you watch him ski pillows and he can like land, like be like touching one ski and then recover. It's like, good Lord, you're good at this dude. But someone that skilled in the mountain, he has amazing mountain sense, but we're skiing these kind of just fun trees. And he says, you know what, man, like if that my kind of skiing I ever get to do again, I'll be totally satisfied. That's a person that skied the gnarliest, the steepest, like all the Alaska lines and all the crazy stuff. And he still has the joy within him to be able to ski like fun, mellow, inconsequential tree skiing. And that's really what it's all about. That's like taking the ego out of the equation and just allowing yourself to have fun. But, you know, just to to counter that, like he's a, a person that's in the industry. So he has to ski a lot. It's, that's a tough thing for somebody that's only getting out on weekends to, to do. Right. So it takes, it takes a good consistent message in the public avalanche bulletin. And then it also takes, you know, a bit of miles, uh, a bit of maturity and some experience to be able to like, you know, tap or cool a little bit when the the conditions don't allow to send. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well said, very well said, Dom. And you know, like I'm in my late thirties and I remember when, when Jim Harris and I were, both living in Utah and like just going through Andrew McLean's book of the shooting gallery and like using it as a tick list. And I can remember skiing lines, like the why not core that's like 50 degrees and involves this propel. Um, we can talk about incident stories at some point here too, but it was like, I felt like I had to go out there and, and sort of slay dragons. I think that Bruce Tremper is where I got that, that mind, not that mindset, but that terminology from that young men need to go out and young people need to go out and slay dragons. And that's part of it. So yeah, well, like, you know, I can have a funny mustache and at 38 years old, I'm like, just go ski trees. It's great. It's because I've kind of been there and done that with a lot of the the big lines. So I totally emphasize with what you're saying. It's like, it's yeah. When it's sunny and things look good to go. Oh yeah. There's an allure to get on big features for sure. It's always stable when it's sunny, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. When you feel that good with the sun hitting you and in the mountains in winter, like what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, that's definitely, yeah. there's some element of that that might be clouding our judgment at this moment. Well, I'm, it's oh, good to hear yeah. you talking about injecting that mindset um, facet into a public avalanche forecast, because I think there's been an evolution in the, and maybe interesting to hear your your sense on this, but like I remember reading public avalanche bulletins when I first got into backcountry skiing, and they're quite general. And they talked about you know wind loading and staying away from avalanche terrain, and they're really kind of not exactly trying to scare people away, but just more or less like telling you to stay away without using those words. Whereas then there became a bit of a shift to talking about like specific layers and people. Uh, I think the overall education of the backcountry using public has really increased. There's a lot of people that are taking courses, which is super cool to see. So people kind of understand the lingo a little bit. And now people are out there digging and looking for specific layers. So maybe having a bit of a swing of the pendulum back to the middle where there's a bit of a, a big picture view of like, what's your mindset? How are you feeling going into this? Is your ambition playing a role in what line you're trying to ski because it's your weekend and there's this line you've always wanted to ski? Or are you taking the conditions for what they actually are right now and and realizing that uh, maybe your plans, uh, like maybe plan A, plan B and plan Z are out, you know, that's uh, that flexibility that comes with experience maybe. Uh, it's a valuable thing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you touch on a couple interesting things there and the kind of like, like the, the forecasts of yesteryear, which were all text and very verbose. And I mean, I've written forecasts like that to you. Like I used to, I remember using all these funny analogies about guns and this, that, and the other. And the reality is that when people read like, you know, my six paragraph forecasts, they, what the user testing showed that like, it didn't mean that much to them. You know, so if you say avoid windwards, or if you avoid, yeah, avoid wind loaded slopes, and then you give them an analogy, like that might work, but like what actually works for public risk communication is things like iconography, it's colors, it's really basic stuff. And, you know, I think that before, like I would write these really verbose forecasts and then my friends would call me to be like, okay, I read your forecast, but what do I actually need to know? And then I would ramble off like a list of three things that I was thinking about, like, mm, you know, like, uh, avoid south-facing slopes, you know, like north feels pretty good to go watch your cornices. And they'd be like, okay, great. Like, maybe you could just say that next time. And <laughs> Nothing like your like, friends no, to tell you how it is. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really enjoying writing these really complicated forecasts, so I can't make it that simple. So was there um, some testing behind the shift towards the icons that we see now in the public avalanche bulletins and, and icons that are quite similar <laughs> to those used around the world, realistically, you know, you have like basically three elevation bands, alpine tree line, below tree line, and then you have the compass rows for aspects. Yeah, to my knowledge, the biggest test that's going on with that stuff and the usability of it is actually going on at Simon Fraser University right now, um, for the most part. To be totally honest, all that stuff comes from a bunch of men who look like you and me deciding that this is what we need to um, tell people about the avalanche patch. And it's folks that are really experienced like you and I, and if they don't get it, how could they possibly not get it? And I think that's actually where a lot of what we've done has come out of. But now um, Avalanche Canada, along with um, Simon Fraser University is actually taking forecasts and then having these like they do so much neat stuff like these are like three-dimensional whiteboards with aspects on them and like vegetative bands so some slopes are treated others are not and they're saying like okay based on this forecast where would you ski today 
or what's not going to happen. They're using um, skiers, sledders, snowshoers who we often forget about. And like snowshoes are selling like hotcakes now too. And that's so easy. You strap a pair on, you can walk almost anywhere into Avalanche Train. Um, but that, it's, I think that's it's what's happening right now that's actually going to change it a lot going forward. Um, and, and so I think we're going to start seeing, and we're already seeing with some of the work that's coming out that like, we actually need to do a lot more. And it can be, we need to start talking to users in different tiers too. Some people just want to know, should they go to the backcountry today or not? Right. And it's a binary decision. And so what, just so I'm kind of clear there. So you're uh, this Simon Fraser University down on the coast there has got a graduate program and students are more or less testing for retention or uh, comprehension of the forecast with like traveling public. So they'll find backcountry users and say, hey, based on this forecast, where would you ski? Is that kind of how they're testing it? There, it's it's not just comprehension, but it's it. Well, yeah, it is comprehension. I should say it's not just retention. So the idea is like how you know that is actually the magic of a thing. And people who are good at backcountry travel, I, I think like in many ways, folks like you and I have spent a whole lifetime just to find good skiing, and it just happened to become a job too. Because if you can avoid wind slabs, like you can you can find better skiing, basically. Absolutely, good point. I think that that's kind of what happens here. And that's kind of why folks become guides. They just get really good at finding good skiing and riding. Where's the wind? Um, that, the snow? How is the sun yeah. affecting the snow? What surfaces do I want to avoid purely from a quality standpoint? That's oh, an interesting point. Exactly. And so, but we're really good at it. But when you like just buy your first pair of, of backcountry skis and, and, you know, like skiers are really good at this. Like they'll, they'll take a, a course that, you know, I think it's the, the difference is that you often in the sled community, you find people who are really skilled at their sport and been doing it for a long time. And they kind of get scared into taking a course a lot. Skiers, like the new skiers for the most part, um, you know, they get, they get the new gear and they're like, I need to take a course. And so they go out and do a weekend course, but like a weekend AST one or your, your airy one, I don't care who's teaching it. Like, all it's really doing is teaching you how to identify avalanche terrain. So now you can identify avalanche terrain versus non-avalanche terrain, but how do you decide when to go into avalanche terrain? Like, you know, only when it's green or only when it's low, low, like, I mean, that's not very often that that happens. So how do you deal with that middle ground, moderate or considerable? How do you go out there and find riding in those conditions? How do you go out there and, you know, avoid the avalanche problem, but still have a good day? That's a really hard thing to do. And that's what some of this research is. The preliminary stuff that I've seen is starting to show us is like, we need to be a lot more um, deterministic with like what to go do. And I think things like the eights model or avalanche train exposure scale, you know, where professionals are going out and deciding what train is simple, challenging, or complex. Like, I think that some of our tools are going to start to evolve. So we say like, today is a day that you can go into challenging terrain and then you can you can, we have the eight ratings displayed on our website. You can download them now. But I think the actual future of backcountry, of, of forecasting for avalanches, is actually more of a trip planning tool. And huh, doing like what a guiding operation. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, come back to a guiding operation. Like, many people don't realize this, but a guiding operation has a whole list of all their runs for the day. And what they do in a guides meeting is they actually decide what's in or out. And so, they're not flying, and so they, they make a green list. So these, these, these runs are green lit for the day, so the guides can go and ski those runs. But the red stuff, they don't even touch. Sometimes they'll, they'll put an amber or a yellow on something that they wanna go explore, 
but they don't switch that run list around in the middle of the day. They're not like, you know what? Like, I think we were a bit too conservative. So we're going to launch into one of the red things. Like that's not how that works at all. So I think that if we can start to provide green list terrain for people, which is hard because you're as a forecaster, you're really starting to step out when you're starting to be that mystic to say like, I think that that run is good to go. Or I think that this area is good to go. That's when you start talking about like challenging features within simple terrain and like, yeah, it does get quite, quite challenging when there's like literally millions of square kilometers of ski terrain out there and you can't be in every, every place at once too, right? You're, you're still at the end of the day, relying on little snippets of information here and there to write a forecast, which it, just to bring things back kind of to the start of the conversation, when you were uh, first starting with Avalanche Canada and exploring and covering so much terrain, and then these visits that you're doing to the North Rockies, like that surely is uh, helpful for you when you're putting these forecasts out, because you at least know the zones and you're not just like full yeah. bore armchair, armchair forecasting. No, and like you, you can't, you you just can't be like the full armchair forecaster. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about our team is we have a, a revolving cast of about a dozen different characters who write forecasts. Some hundred days a year, others only thirty days a year, but they're all folks who spend a lot of time in the terrain, either um, as avalanche workers with different jobs, doing consulting or engineering, um, many many guides. So they're out there skiing and being in the terrain, and. To be truly good at this job, you have to be able to put yourself in the train. Um, I think that Joe Lammers, who I worked with for many years at Avalanche Canada, like I would always see him kind of over at his desk and he would sort of like look meditating. And I remember asking him like the first time that I had the, the courage to, 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 when he opened his eyes, like, what are you, what are you doing there? And he said, well, you know, he, had, he always had the steel ruler too. So he would put his thumb on it and be like, okay, that's 20 centimeters of snow. And he'd be like, I'm just going to go put myself in that train. And he had spent so much time in the mountains of Western Canada doing this, that, and the other, that he could pick a train feature from any region and go like visit that train mentally and, and, and see how he felt there. So it, it was this really incredible look into the mental model. Wow. That's um, a strong mindset. Hey. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. But I, I, you know, at this point, like, I've spent enough time in all the regions that I have a few spots in every region that I can kind of think about that way. Um, I guess you get to know the popular spots after a while, right? Oh yeah. And you need to know, you need to know the hot spots in every region and you need to be able to go visit those places. Um, And one of the great things about Avalanche Canada now, especially is I spend about a third of my time doing field work. Um, So I'll be in the office for a shift doing a number of different tasks, but then I'll go into the field for, you know, a week at a time, usually a week to 10 days, a month, and I'll go visit those spots. And so I'll be forecasting for a region, then I'll go in there and and get to actually get my hands in it and touch and feel it again and, and really, you know, ground truth myself again. And like that process is critical because to be honest, we don't get a lot of feedback at Avalanche Canada. Like if you totally blow a forecast, you might hear about it from the public or you might hear about it from an email from a professional, but it is so different from like what I was doing in Utah, where in Utah, I would get up at four in the morning. I would write my forecast. It would be out the door. And well, at that time it would be, I'd be recording the voicemail as well. And so I'd be getting in the truck and going out sledding and skiing about about seven o'clock in the morning. I only wrote one forecast in the morning. I went out there to the field and I get to know right away. Like sometimes it would smack me in the face. It's like, oh, you get out there and like, you're just getting pounded by snow and you thought that wasn't gonna snow at all. Or you're like, you know, I I expected that, that 20 centimeters wouldn't do anything and 15 plus centimeters 
or 15 centimeters plus wind. And like things are just, I'm getting shooting bucks everywhere. I'm scared. I think, I think you have to go and do that first. I mean, it's such a good point. That's a lot more like a ski hill forecasting job, you know, where Mm -hmm. no matter what the storm is doing and how gnarly things are, whatever the conditions are, you're out every single day. You're, um, I mean, I always thought like when I was ski hill forecasting that we're really just coming up with a theory in the morning and then spend the rest of the day theory testing. And then at the end of the 100%. day, you've got a much more succinct idea of what's going on out there because you've been out there, you've been hurling yourself onto the slope or you've been chucking explosives or whatever it is. And you really are getting that feedback where, you know, some of the highway models or like the public avalanche forecasting model, you have so much terrain to cover. You really can't be everywhere every day. So you don't necessarily get that feedback on, on how right you are. So it's, it's great to hear that you guys are getting out into the field regularly to, uh, to ground truth your, your ideas there. Because then like to bring it back to what we we're just talking about, you're talking about trying to be a bit more specific about terrain use considerations for, for the, the general public. And, you know, you can kind of get into that Joe Lammers mindset and think about like what 20 new centimeters of snow would feel like, because you were only just there a week ago. So you kind of know what the current up-to-date uh, vibe is out there and the, and the, the hazards much more tangible to you, even if you are, you know, a thousand kilometers away in your office in Revelstoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, avalanche forecasting in the words of Ken Bibby is, is a dark art. Um, but those are the kind of tricks that, you know, I use to, to put myself out there. Now, I know that folks like Mike Conlon or Ryan Bueller, like the engineers out there, are probably just like, I can just see them grimacing with my touchy feely avalanche forecast. But <laughs> like, it's, it's what works for me. And, you know, like, we can't all be engineers. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Um, but, you know, I really consider myself like, yeah, I'm an avalanche forecaster, but I think at heart, I'm actually a risk communicator. And so I actually have a, you know, I can speak snow dork and I can work with the InfoX and I do, I basically translate snow dork into um, layman's terms every day. That's my job essentially. But I really enjoy just writing about these things in simple terms a lot more than I do, you know, like. I, I could never work at at Pass, for instance. And I'm sure by saying this on a podcast, I never will. But I, I couldn't do it, honestly. Like their model is incredible up there, and it's it's it, it works so well, and it keeps the highway safe. And like I have the utmost respect for it. But like I could never go and dig a hole to ground and carefully annotate it every day. It would drive me insane. That was like, Rogers Pass I'm, you were talking about there. You just broke up a little bit. Yeah. Right. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah, a quite a different program. They have another massive area, like 150 odd avalanche paths and yeah. the trans Canada highway running through it. And then this unique kind of history as well. Like really they were the first public avalanche forecasting entity in the country because the railway mm-hmm. went through that area in the late 1800s and, you know, they've had a history of incredible accidents and all this stuff. And then they have this interesting relationship with the military firing the howitzer for them. So they're not, not even necessarily out there heli bombing to like see firsthand, like how the slab breaks up or how the, you know, entrainment happens, like as more snow gets, you know, gathered as the, the avalanche keeps rolling down the track, so to speak. It's such an interesting place. And it's so technical and it's so like, it is so by the book and it works and it keeps the highway safe. And, and like, I know, and I'm good friends, with a lot of folks who work up there, but when I hear about their days and just like, you know, the technicality of it and just like lining it up, like, okay, we have 17.5 millimeters of, of snow of a water equivalent on this layer. So let's go for a shoot at night. And, you know, that, 
just doesn't work for me. Like what I really like is not so much the very technical aspect about it, but is, is really getting into the more, um, the quality side of it and trying to, trying to offer people minds and trying to shape desires and trying to shape behavior and trying to talk about these things in, in simple terms. So, is that something you know, that it, you've translated into teaching avalanche courses, Grant? Because it sounds like you have the passion and the kind of uh, um, inclination to uh, to really bring a lot of these complicated things into layman's terms, that's uh, layperson's terms that, uh, you know, is really easy to pick up on. Because, you know, the tough thing about courses is everybody's got a different learning style. So it seems like that's the ultimate uh, risk communication challenge right there to find something that works for each individual on the course. Yeah, you know, I, I did teach a lot when I was in Utah, but my schedule is such in Canada that I really, I really don't have time to teach. Um, but I think some of that has translated now as I'm slowly becoming one of the old guys is that when we have new guys in, I can off, I'm, I'm both mentoree and mentor at this point. Um, last year, we had a, a new cat join our team, Ben Hawkins, and he's like a born and bred of the North Rockies guy. And he, he had done his, his ITP one. And he and I got a chance to spend, gosh, I don't know, probably a month together in the field over four or five different trips. And I got a chance to really mentor Ben into this thing and kind of shape how he thinks about this stuff and, and, and be that person as so many have been to me. And so I think that's kind of where my, my teaching is now. And, and maybe one of the most valuable parts of the job to me, you know, that last year, gosh, it was wild. Ben and I were up in the Kakwa. So this is like a it's like a hundred kilometer sled ride in from either BC or Alberta, the Kakwa's and the North Rockies, it straddles um, the border between BC and Alberta. So if you're an American and you're following along, like you go from Glacier National Park in Northwestern Montana, and then you would bump up um, into Waterton and then you would get like Banff, Yoho, Kootenai, Jasper. And then you would go further north of Jasper following the spine of the Rockies along um, into the Wilmore and eventually to the Kakwa. And so if you can envision those like big Banff, like Rockies, prows, you know, limestone, thousands of, of feet high, these big proud ship type features, but then you can ride a sled almost anywhere. That's the Kakwa. And, and similar snowpack to the rest of the Rockies. So like weak continental yeah. pack. Yeah. But, but it's like, it's, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time ski touring and, and ski traversing in places like the Rockies. And so, you know, you do a hundred kilometer ski traverse over the course of four or five days. Um, the apex of last season was Ben and I having a chance under really good conditions to start going in and putting like a hundred kilometer days in on the sleds and linking multiple features and just digging our faces off and being really efficient. And it, it, there aren't, to be quite honest, there are not a lot of people in our industry who, there's a lot of people who do that on skis, who can go and gather information very quickly and very efficiently on skis. There aren't a lot of sled folks out there who can do it. And there's even fewer who can do both ski sleds. So we had a chance to go out there and it was, it was one of the highlights of the last few years of my avalanche career was going out there and just gathering information. We'd be sending it back to the Rebel Soap forecasters. Um, we're staying in this like little one room cabin that is only satellite sat phone and like in reach connection. And it's going out there and like, just being just like feeling like pioneers, like feeling like the, the old folks must have in back in the day. That's um, the wild west up there. That sounds amazing to go with yeah. hundred kilometer or 60 mile sled ride through the totally. big, big spine of the Rockies and towards the big, North end of the Rockies too, before they peter out and then turn into the McKenzie's, I guess. eh? Exactly. Yeah. Well done, sir. Um, but yeah, it's, it's those kind of opportunities for teaching now that I think I am, I'm getting more into. And I, I think that I'm gonna, I'll see where that takes me in the future. But I think that one of my roles as a senior forecaster is to hopefully help 
mentor new staff into different things. And I think one of the really neat things about about avalanche forecasting is that is that I am a I'm mentored all the time still, and you know I'm learning things about this and I'm being humbled in this all the time. And I I, I don't think that's going to stop. You know I had a chance yesterday to be out with Ilya Storm, and that that's someone that's like a just a rock star to me. And I know he laughs at that, but it's like to go out and work with someone who's been in the mountains that long and has been like doing this public knowledge forecasting thing that long. Like I picked up on a lot of things from him yesterday that I'm just like storing away. And it's a, uh, that's the neat thing about, about this industry is that like we're, we're learners all the time at the same time we're teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't get too bold. What do they say? There's old guides and bold guides, but <laughs> not, not both. Well, and you know, you, you think you know it, but then you get schooled. Like that is the thing about avalanches. There's no shortage of surprises and, and getting cocky and having an ego about it is the surefire way to have an accident. So yeah, it's really oh, cool to hear you say that. And, and, uh, and one thing I found really interesting about my time in the avalanche career is that everyone's so giving of their time and their knowledge. Like there, it's not like these closely guarded secrets or whatever. People are quite into uh, teaching and sharing. So, you know, it's, we're really fortunate for that. And I think the whole industry benefits as a result yeah there's a lot of heart in this industry it is so cool and i don't know if i could ever leave it at this point like i'm so in it and it's certainly not a get rich quick scheme that's for sure it offers (laughs) (laughs) it does it offers this really rich life um you know i always love speaking of podcasts like i'm loving the utah Avalanche center podcast and what drew hardesty is offering down there and talking to people um, I would recommend that listeners check out the podcast from there that backcountry skiing is um, more like blackjack than chess. You know, we think we're making these strategic moves out there, but in reality, we're betting it all on small pieces of information. And oh, good analogy. Yeah, it, it's not mine. It's it's theirs. But, you know, I think that's, it's just to, to build, we had Drew talk at our training this year and it's just like, man, I did, there's so many figures that I still look up to in such a huge way in this industry that, just trying to humbly follow in their footsteps and see see what will happen when we're the gray-haired folks in the room. Well, that was the first half of a fun conversation with Grant Helgeson. Thanks for listening. Check out part two. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get Caleb some five-star reviews. He's been putting out a great podcast for years, and those five-star reviews really help him. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Well, until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, having fun out there.